thank you so much, Lionel, for being with me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. You're my 31st guest. So happy for you to join with me today. Uh, how are you? And thanks so much for joining. Well, I'm doing great, a little bit tired, but uh, thank you for uh, having me on. Absolutely, uh, Coach Hollins. When you think about relationship building, how would you define it in your words? Well, I think the, the big word that you would use is uh, trust. That, that's a, a word that, you know, people throw around, but it's, it's a powerful word and it's more of developing trust, having whoever the group that you're involved with trust you and then you trust them because it works both ways. So, and in my case with players, players always say, well, you don't trust me. Well, you have to earn trust just like I have to earn your trust and showing you that I care about you and showing you that I want to help you be what you want to be. But everything is relative because it's, it's a team game. So it has to be in a team framework, but trust is a big word. Absolutely. And you've been a part of phenomenal teams. I mean, when I think about the 1977 NBA championship that you won with hall of famer, Bill Walton coached by, uh, the late Dr. Jack Ramsey, whose son, Chris Ramsey, I worked with at ESPN. He was a previous guest on my broadcast. So I love the parallels there. I love the overlap there. I mean, probably, and probably dating back to college as well, but talk to me about some of those earliest experiences and then being on that championship team that was uh, one of the best in NBA history. Well, uh, I think that uh, the word that I told you, trust was huge, uh, commitment to each other as well as commitment um, to the coaching staff, to the work we had at hand. You know, uh, those things all play a part. Uh, and uh, you develop relationships because you go out and you do your job and uh, you hold yourself accountable to doing the job for the other teammates and then they do the same and, uh, and you develop a bond that's uh, never broken. Absolutely, and when you think about you know, your previous uh, coaching experiences, whether it was coaching uh, the Grizzlies, uh, whether it was coaching the, the Nets, and now you're the uh, assistant coach of the Houston Rockets, had won an NBA championship, as well as the assistant coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, talk to me about, you know, the different times of your life and having to adjust to different coaching uh, positions on certain teams. And I'm sure the common denominator is trust, as you mentioned. Well, it is trust, but it's also uh, adaptability. Uh, I heard this statement a long time ago, and it says that you have to, in, in these in environments, and it's even the same in work environments because language is different, roles are different. You had to be able to learn, and then you have to be able to unlearn and then relearn. Because everywhere you go, I think in football, it probably speaks real high in the volume perspective because you play for one team, they have certain language. And you go to another team, they have different language. And basketball is more about roles. You, you have a, a role on one team and you go to a different team. And I could speak to that from when I was in Portland, I was one of the top three guys on the team from offensive options. And then when I uh, went to Philadelphia, I was not one. And so my role changed, but I had to adapt so that I could still perform and still uh, do my job. And I think it gets lost on a lot of uh, younger players today because they think everything is supposed to be the same as it was when they were in college or in high school. 
but every level is different. Every team is different and you have to learn how to adapt. And we are adaptable humans. I mean, humans are adaptable and it's important that they understand that it's not hard. It just takes a little time and it takes a little thought process and willingness. You have to be willing to embrace whatever role you have. You have to be willing to study, to learn what the new language is, what the new sets are. They might be similar, but they're not exactly the same. And certainly the play calls aren't the same and the schemes on defense aren't the same. So um, it just takes a little time to to commit to doing that. And, you know, you played at a time, I mean, think about the 70s and the 80s and in and, and the NBA, and even really up to the late 90s and early 2000s, I mean, teams were still calling, you know, set plays, and, you know, the games may have gotten in the 80s and the 90s, and, you know, more or less in the hundreds but now you see such a faster pace game and you know scores can be 120 140 sometimes even 150 and less of the set plays and more of the you know run and gun type of offense and I know guys are more athletic now and they can spread the floor a lot better and you know with guys like, you know, Steph Curry, but even before you had Ray Allen and you had Reggie Miller and you had people like Jason Kidd, players like Jason Kidd, I mean, three-point range is uh, more prevalent now. So that helps, you know, increase the scoring. But talk to me about, like, when you were as a player and then as an assistant coach, then as a head coach back to an assistant through those decades of the changing of the game. But to your point, the language despite the adaptability, the language pretty much, you know, being the same more or less. Well, you know, they talk about the scores being higher. Uh, our championship team, I think we averaged 111 or 113 points a game. We were fourth in the NBA in scoring. Wow. But so that's like every, an anomaly for the 70s. Not, yeah. The, the thing that, and even in the 60s, teams averaged a lot of points without a three-point line. I think that the difference is um, – the versatility of players and the specialists that are have dominated now. Now you get a guy in the center, all he wants to do is roll and catch alley oops. And he you don't throw it to him in the post anymore. Everybody wants to spread the court so that you can play pick and roll and just drive and draw into the paint and kick out for threes. And there's a lot more people shooting threes. And uh, uh, with the new eight second a timeline rule and then 14 seconds on the shot clock when the ball goes out of bounds. All those things have contributed to scores being higher because there's more possessions and it, it keeps teams from playing different styles. You know, even when I was in Memphis, we played a slower style because we had our two best players were post-up players and it was not in our uh, best interest to run up and down the court and have those guys not see the ball. And let's, and, but we played that in Portland because we had runners and finishers and we had big guys that could score in the post. We had that when I was in Philadelphia. And so I think what has changed the style really is that uh, lower levels of play, the players at the lower levels are not getting the basic fundamentals to be what they can be in totality. Coaches are looking at a particular skill and developing that one skill, whether it be a shooter, whether it be a dribbler, whether it be a passer, a rebounder, a defender. And you see teams will have one guy that's a great defender. But the really good teams, all of their guys defend to a certain level. I mean, the Warriors have the unique ability to have playmakers, passers, shooters, cutters, 
But the one thing that people can't match is their IQ. And uh, when you have a team that, that makes great decisions, makes great passes, and makes them at the right time, they're going to have a lot of possessions and score a lot of points because everybody thinks that they can play like the Warriors, but they can't do it on their level. Everybody tried to play the triangle and try to play like Phil Jackson in, in Chicago and even in L.A., but it, everybody can't do it because it's personnel-driven. No system is, is, is correct for every team. You go back to the great John Wooden. You know, he he had great teams and he had a great system, but everybody couldn't play like that because he didn't have great players like like John Wood. Uh, Red Arbeck started small ball back in the 60s. They would play with Bill Russell at 6'10", and everybody else was shorter. And uh, they ran the fast break, but they only bought players that fit their system, which is important. And uh, I think the, the one downside to how everybody's playing now it doesn't always fit your personnel and and you can't win if the majority of your personnel is not uh, put in a position to, to be all that they can be and and but you know it's more exciting to play faster I, I was excited when everybody started playing faster and uh, I think that the game still comes down to uh, can you execute in the half court can you make good decisions can you defend can you rebound and can you play when the game is not allowing you to play at, at, at you know the jet sound speed right you know you saw last year um, minnesota had a 26 point lead and a 20 point right. lead in the second half of one game right and they lost the game that comes down to decision making being able to slow the ball down a little bit to execute and know what the shot clock is know what the time on the clock is and know what to score those things are all factors that will never leave the nba no matter what style it's in and is popular, it's still important to have those things. And the teams that have those still are very successful. Of course. And, you know, as I hear you explain so, you know, eloquently and well about, you know, what people experience or what players experience, what coaches had to experience, you know, when it was coaching, you know, their opposition or against their opposition rather. And I'm, Think about, you know, the times of Bill Russell or even Will Chamberlain. I mean, they, in terms of their their height, I mean, you had Will Chamberlain. He was the first person, I think the only person, right? He's the only person to score 100 points in a game. Kobe Bryant was the second most at 81. I mean, guys like Michael Jordan scored 69 points, 63 against the Celtics, uh, which is a playoff record uh, in the playoffs back in the 80s. I mean, there were games throughout history where guy would score 50, 60 points or, you know, yes, to your point, your, your trailblazers teams. I mean, you guys are scoring over a hundred points. Um, I, I am, I'm younger. So I, I just remember, you know, those, those nineties teams and, you know, you got to coach, um, you know, under Paul Westfall, uh, you got to coach uh, with him with the Phoenix Suns and Charles Barkley uh, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley in that 93 NBA Finals against Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant. What was that NBA Finals like? We were a, a, a high-scoring team in Phoenix. We were never out of a game because we could score. Right. We had plenty of shooters. We ran and we played. Uh, the difference between uh, the Bulls and the Suns was Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. I think Charles had 44 in a game. Michael had 55. Right. You know, he was the greatest player in the game at the time. And Charles did all that he could do. And we uh, uh, 
went to triple overtime in one game. We won two out of three in Chicago. It was an exciting time to be back in the finals. I hadn't been back since I played. I went three times as a player. And then to be back in the finals again was exciting. It was different because the exposure was so different. It was so much more media. And when I played, it wasn't that much. And then the games were tape delayed. So, you know, you, you could get home and get in the bed and turn the TV on. They'd be on at 10 o'clock at night. But, uh, you know, the, and that's probably the, uh, the huge change in the sport. Forget the stats of scoring and all that is the exposure. You know, we have NBA TV, you have TNT, uh, you know, you have all the uh, other cable channels, ESPN, that that show games all during the week. So there's a lot right. more exposure in all these uh, talk shows that start at 7 in the morning and go until 7 at night when the games start playing, and they go year-round. They're analyzing everything, any, every move that players make. And so uh, that has changed as well in the game, which puts a lot of burden on the players because so many people are talking about it. It's not all positive. You know, we have a huge uh, mental health issue in all the sports, but especially in basketball. And a big part of it is because uh, of the exposure. You have social media, you have people with opinions that probably never played, but they, they have an opinion about how you played or how you didn't play. And then you have the talk shows doing the same. You have the media uh, at the games writing stories. So it, it's, it's a, it's a different, different league, but it certainly was exciting being in that, in that finals. And, uh, we were very, uh, good team. We lost the first two games at home and then we had to go to Chicago and we went two out of three and we come home and we're up by two points coming down the stretch in that fifth, uh, sixth game, I guess it was. And, uh, we wind up, uh, getting beat on a three-pointer by John Paxton. And uh, if we give up a two, we go to overtime. But we gave up a three, and we go home. We really but, like the, the game of inches. I mean, I know they that's a football, you know, reference, but in basketball, too. It, I mean, it's one basket, one defensive stop, you know, a design, set play, you know, positioning of players. You know, it just takes, in the playoffs, it just takes one, you know, inopportune or opportune moment right uh to make a difference i mean i remember when charles said in the media uh, and, he, and i've heard him say this before and you know i've had the uh, privilege of meeting him once before a great guy uh, when i used to live in atlanta and i remember he said probably when he was younger and he's probably said it since that he felt that up until he knew michael jordan or got to play against michael jordan he felt like he was the best basketball player on the floor and he felt that wow in that 93 finals that there's somebody actually better than Charles. I mean, if, if Michael is out of the equation, Charles is the best guy on the floor. And you probably experienced this so much throughout your career and as a coach too. It's like you could have two players and, you know, it's like splitting hairs in terms of whether it's athleticism or basketball IQ or, or dominance. I mean, Charles was a great rebounder, also can score to move up the floor very quickly. I feel like he's you know, similar to Carl Malone too, guys who are bigger bodies, but who are great offensive players. And, um, but what, what was your impression, you know, uh, you know, when, when you saw someone like Charles, but then you see someone like Mike? Well, I saw Michael and Charles both up close. I played against them uh, in the league before I retired. And uh, they were different. They were both uh, explosive. One was 
you know, a power forward, undersized, but very athletic, could dribble the ball, could shoot, could pass, could post up. And then you had another guy that was created for basketball. You know, he had the right height, arms, big hands, quick, fast, jump high. And if you go back and look at his statistics, if he hadn't gone to Washington and played, he would have shot 50% for his career as the as one of the top scorers in the league. Right. He was very efficient. And people don't realize about him that when he, when he shot, he made them from everywhere, anywhere. And I think that when you watch a game of Michael, you'll watch a game and you won't see Michael like everybody expects to see Michael. Sure. But the game is always got 38 points because he didn't have to dominate the ball. He didn't have to over dribble because he was so efficient at what he did. And, uh, you know, he played every facet. He, he played in the half court. He played in the post. He ran on the lane in the fast break. He led the fast break. And when you play all facets, it's hard to find him. And then you add the triangle offense where he could be in the post, be in the corner, be on the wing, be at the elbow. Those things are, are difficult to scout and difficult to defend against. And it wouldn't matter because Michael was such a, a dynamic player. And he, he was the best during his era. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've had a pleasure of meeting, you know, Michael, too. It's It's been 17 years, and I, I actually met him two years after he retired from the Wizards, but he was still, you could tell he was still in that NBA shape and, you know, working out regularly. And, you know, at 6'6", six, six, I'm six feet now, but probably when I was 17, I was a little under six feet. But, you know, it's it, it was a joy for me because he was my idol growing up, you know, in terms of players I looked up to. But, you know, I was a big fan of Charles Barkley, and I was pretty much a big fan of anybody who played on the the '92 Dream Team. And you know, when I think about uh, you talk about those Washington Wizards years, I mean, if you subtract if you subtract those Wizards years, Michael Jordan as a Chicago Bull was shooting at least 50% from the field. Because I remember my memory serves me well, even after those two Washington Wizards years, when you factor in his field goal percentage. As a career, Michael Jordan, 49.7% from the field, which is amazing. And I think that, you know, for his career toward the latter part, he started to develop the three-point line, you know, in his repertoire. And, you know, he was he was not somebody who had to shoot threes. I mean, his mid-range game was phenomenal, the best we've ever seen, and his fundamentals, the best we've ever seen. Um, so I, I feel that, you know, Michael playing in this era – would do exceptionally well. Would score a lot more points because, although you have great defenders now and the defenses are just as, you know, exceptional, but I think that even more so in the '90s and '80s and when you were playing, I, I think as just a fan, but you probably feel differently. Um, how much has the defense changed? Was it more aggressive then because you had you know the bad boy Pistons? I mean, you had. It, w- it was different. You know, there was hand, you know, there was hand checking then, not so much now. So I was just curious from a defensive side of things, you know, how have you seen changes? Well, the biggest changes is that um, most of the young players, first of all, it's a young league now. That's number one. Number two, yeah. the young players have never been required to play defense in their whole life. Don't understand concepts generally. That's, I can't make a blanket statement. And, uh, so Michael coming in now would dominate even more because it is a young league. That's that's it in a nutshell. Forget right. 
all the defenses play, everybody switches. Now, it doesn't matter if you switched on Michael. Nobody, you don't have four guys that could guard Michael on your team. You have one that can be in front of him, but he can't stop him. And you have another that everybody thinks can stay in front of him. The rest of the team don't want to be on him. So they're not wanting to switch willingly like everybody does now and, and take on Michael and take on any of those guys. Barkley, you're not switching and having a guard guard Barkley, you know, you, you know, because it's not going to work. And so, uh, you know, we talk a lot about how the defense have changed. They're more sophisticated. There's a lot more scouting now. But when I played with the Blazers, we had three plays. We had our main flow offense, which we played 90% of the time. And then we had a few plays for Bill, for Luke, and for myself. Other than that, it was just we read. Right. And now everybody says nobody's nobody's running plays now or less plays. Uh, it's more schoolyard basketball. Guy who has it tries to go score. And that's not how the era I played in was. We had sure. a lot more structure. And that's why, you know, even Michael had more structure. Who's to say how many points Michael could score if he never passed anybody on his team? Right. right. I mean, he was averaging 30 plus already. So if you say, okay, Michael, every time you have it, you can shoot and you can shoot whenever from wherever. Right. Now, maybe his efficiency might go down a little bit because he wasn't a shooter, but his numbers would certainly go because he also got to the free throw line. I think, uh, we miss uh, how difficult different errors are for a lot of reasons. You know, we go and travel and we eat five times a day, right? That we have masseuse, we have rehab doctors, we have people that just take care of you from a medical perspective, from a nutritional perspective, right? And we fly charter, and everything is cozy and comfortable, but. You know, everybody cries about two a days. Everybody cries about four and five days, but that was the norm. And even in my era, we played three a day. Right. <laughs> so three, you know, so you play three games in a row. You know, and you're you're traveling the day of the game because we didn't fly at night because there was no charters. We got up at five thirty in the morning and got on a regular flight. So to say that this guy is better or that guy is better, or the defenses are better. You know, uh, I I can't. Uh, agree with anybody on that and, it, and it's the same way with saying who's the greatest player i just said michael was the greatest player in his era and that's the era he played in and that's all you can go by it we could speculate uh, what it would be like if he had played before or what it'd be like if he played later and that's what all those guys i mean you can't say that bill russell or will chamberlain would not have dominated this era oh they can't play in this era too slow no somebody would have had to guard wilt every time down court Somebody would have had to guard Kareem every time down court. Right. Right. And, you know, and I think that uh, the defense are, defenses are better from the perspective of preparation, the intense preparation. We have preparation as well, but it's, it's more in-depth and video is more in-depth. Uh, but when you start talking about guarding your own man, right. there wasn't a lot of switching. There wasn't a lot of double teaming. In the day, you had to guard your man. If you couldn't guard him, he was going to outdo you, or coach was going to take you out and put somebody else in. It could do it a little bit better. So, but, when, uh, yeah, when you think about relationship building compared to the time when you were playing 
with Bill Walton, Dr. Jack Ramsey, that Portland Trailblazers team. And when you think about, let's just pick a year, the year you went to the finals in 93 with the Phoenix Suns and coaching with uh, Coach uh, Paul Westfall. Like, talk about the relationship building between both of those NBA Finals teams. Similarities, differences, Jack Ramsey's relationship building environment that he created. They they were different. They were different. Uh, Dr. Jack was a detail-oriented coach. He was a doctor by education. He'd been a school teacher, and so he'd been a teacher, and so details were important. Getting it done, repetition was very important. Westy was a former player who wanted to be uh, have freedom in being able to play. So Westy, if he had played now, would probably be a better player than he was, even though he was a great player in his era, because of the freedom that he would have today. And I say that about all those guys that could score. But if, when you start talking about chemistry, chemistry is, and and uh, and uh, the whole. Uh, relationship building is similar in every on every good team it's the same you start out getting to know people wanting to know people wanting to know their strengths and weaknesses and everybody has to understand their weaknesses and that they're not secret when i was uh in vancouver and i was the interim coach and we had a a, a time where we reached in a box and put out a number. It was around the holidays and everybody had a person that they picked out their name and they had only a limited amount of money and they had to find out about that person and they had to get a gift that related to that person. Wow. And what the most interesting, I've done it when I was in Memphis as well. The thing that stood out the most is that all the idiosyncrasies that a person thinks that nobody knows about mm-hmm. are exposed and people do know they don't care. Right. That's who you are. That's who you are. And that's the beautiful thing. When you start talking about relationships, it's like man and woman, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that that woman does that would drive certain people crazy. But in your relationship, you accept who that person is. And that person accepts who you are. And that's the same way with teams. You accept the idiosyncrasies and you accept the weaknesses and flaws. And you're going to try to uh, uh, not let them get exposed. And when I played in Philadelphia, me and Maurice Cheeks should have the joke that we each guarded half of Doc's man. I guarded half, he guarded the other half. And Doc just pointed and told us to get him. You know, but we accepted that because Doc could go get 50 and Doc could win the games for us offensively. So we wanted to have success and we wanted to win. So we weren't complaining about Doc's limited uh, defensive ability. And it wasn't limited because he couldn't. It was because he had such a load offensively. And so for us to embrace helping him on defense helped us win because there was going to be a lack because of his ability to score and taking time to rest a little bit on defense. So we shored up his defensive part and, and uh, he shored up our offensive part, <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, 
it, it really is the same. And it starts at the base. When you go to camp, there has to be a commitment uh, to doing what's right, working hard, and embracing roles. I think relationship building is huge on role development and role, role accepting because everybody doesn't want to be what you want them to be. They only want to be what they want to be. And it's personal. And it's, it's, a, it's a private agenda that could destroy a team because you have to have guys willing to submit and commit to each other and, and hold each other accountable. And I used to tell players, you know, player would say something to me about man so-and-so. I said, why don't you go tell him? I said, the reason that you can't tell him is because you're not doing it 100% your time. You know, if you're doing it 100% of the time, then you can go tell somebody else. Or if you're doing it the majority, if we're running lines and you're always finishing in the top four or five, you can get on somebody to finish in last. But if you finish last two or three days and in the middle of the pack two or three days, then you can't go tell anybody. If you're taking bad shots all the time, you can't tell somebody else not to take bad shots. Right. And so all of that goes into relationship building. And, and, and we, I use the word trust, but it's a commitment that comes first. The trust doesn't come just out of the blue. That's developed over time. But the commitment to each other allows you to build that trust and to be man enough to accept someone's uh, commentary of you or your criticism of you because, it, you know, they're trying to help you be better for them and for you. So if you have those discussions, everybody has to be an adult. When you're talking to somebody, you have to talk as an adult, showing respect. And when you're receiving those conversations, you have to be mature enough to accept it at face value and what, what it stands for. It's not attacking you and it's not personal. It's not making you feel like you're less respected. And that's the, the hardest thing today because young people feel disrespected when they don't get the shots they want, when they don't get the playing time they want, when they don't get the status they want because they've always had it and they, are, they just expect that every level is going to be the same. And, you know, you said that so well. I mean, you pointed out earlier the idiosyncrasies and the idiosyncrasies can happen, you know, between a husband and a wife in a relationship or a partner to a partner, you know, in a, in a marriage from a personal standpoint, but from a professional standpoint, the idiosyncrasies of players on teams. And it's pretty much the same type of thinking, right? I mean, you you want to protect your teammates. You don't want those idiosyncrasies to be exposed, you know, for, you know, the opposition to seize on that, to seize on those weaknesses. So you try to, you know, bolster the strengths and minimize the weaknesses. And, you know, you got to work together uh, for a common goal of, you know, winning games, you know, winning championships. I mean, putting your best foot forward um, every day. And to what you said, you know, just a short time ago, that yes, every player would love to score the most points, get the most rebounds, get the most minutes, get the most assists. Um, but there is a hierarchy of you know talent. I mean, when you have a roster, you know, for an NBA team, when you have a roster, guys one through five, those are the guys who are good enough to start the game. Yet, yes, you always have your sixth man. That's why the sixth man of the year award is always given out because it's always that sixth guy off the bench. But then you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 
13, however many players were on the bench, they got to fight for those minutes. Um, when you think about, and we have about five, six minutes left, you know, when I met Bill Walton, your, your former teammate, I remember, you know, he was talking and speaking so highly of his son, Luke, who played in the NBA for many years and uh, played with the late, great Kobe Bryant on the, on the Lakers, even, you know, was Steve Kerr's assistant with the Warriors before he took a head coaching job. Uh, you also, uh, your son, Austin, uh, also plays basketball. Uh, talk about your relationship with your son and from a relationship building standpoint in the five minutes we have left. Well, he's the one son that was around me without professionals. Had nothing to do with professional basketball. You know, he was the baby. And so the other kids knew a little bit about me as a player, but uh, he knew really nothing. But he was excited to be my son because of that. The other kids didn't even look at it like that. And it's not a negative. It's just they he was excited because he was a basketball player and I was a basketball player. And our relationship was good. I, I worked him out. I've coached him a couple of years in AAU ball on two different occasions. But I tried to let him stand alone on his own because I told all my kids, one, this is your life. It's got to be your passion. If you were trying to do it for me, then stop. Because you know, you're the one that's going to have to go out there and put in extra work and have to persevere all the adversity that you have to go through to be what you want to be. And uh, he's the only one that has risen all the way to a professional level and playing in Europe. And, you know, uh, it's, it's difficult watching your son because you want to be fair, but you also want to be real because there's a lot of people that are in fantasy land about their children. And I remember Hugh, uh, I said, Tubby Smith, called, I said, Hubie Brown, but Tubby Smith called me and he said, coach, uh, I hear we're supposed to be recruiting your son. My coach says your son is real good. What do, what do you think about it? I said, well, Tubby, he's a little on the thin side. I said, if you're recruiting, you're probably redshirting his first year. His next year, you know, he'll be on the bench playing a few minutes. The next year, I think he'll be a rotation player. I don't know if he'll ever be a starter, but he could be. He started all four years in Minnesota. And so my assessment was from a my own reality, which wasn't the reality that was out there. But it, it's just, I'm probably a little more critical, a little tougher. Sure being so close to the situation, whereas other people see differently. And as a father, parent, you're always looking for perfection, which there isn't any. And uh, and he did very well, and he's still doing very well. He's been overseas nine years now and doing well. And so uh, I'm proud of him. I'm happy for him, but I'm proud of all my children and who they are and who they become and who they are as people because – you know, for me, when you start talking about relationships, it's about the character and integrity of the people that you are involving yourself with. And that's important. And it's important in, in players. I think that if you could develop a player's maturity and his and his character and integrity to where he wants to do the right thing, he's going to be better as a player because he's a better person. And he's going to take that in every walk of life and become a better person friend, a better husband, a better father, and even a better son, you know, uh, to, to his own parents. So those things are important because character matters. And it's a, it's a tough business. It's a long season. There's a lot of ups. There's a lot of downs. There's a lot of 
uh, heartbreaking moments. And so if you can't stay together and put your arm around each other and, and because nobody else is, the opponent isn't and the media isn't and the fans may not either. And there's a lot of people that are not even your fans, but they're going to have the teardown mentality as well. So the group has to stick together and pull each other up when somebody's having a down moment or down time or made a mistake in a game that cost you the game. You got to build them up. And it's hard for people outside to understand that mentality, but it's a mentality of, of togetherness and unity, which is in families. And when, and, and that other component is when you do wrong, we're going to hold you accountable. And that that's important as well. So the, the, the building up, the protecting and the holding accountable, they all go together. And again, that trust, the character and integrity just bonds it. Well, thank you so much, Coach Hollins. I really appreciate you being with me today. And I loved your words of wisdom and everything that we discussed. Uh, definitely will take it to heart. You know, when it comes to relationship building, it matters so much in any organization, any business, any family, on any team. So thank you again for being with me and good luck this season with the, with the Rockets and um, hoping that you guys win an NBA title. Well, I appreciate you. And I certainly hope that we can just build a brand and build a product that the fans could be proud of, that the players themselves could be proud of, proud of because winning a championship is really tough. And if you go back through history, each year there's only one. And there's a lot of people competing for them, but there's only one in every sport. And, uh, and it's not easy. Understood. It's not easy. But thank you again for your time. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. You take care.